You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, I'll be talking to GP Chris Ford about how best to talk to your patients about their cannabis use. Three years ago, it was everybody was using crack. Crack has gone down a bit, but actually cannabis use, a lot of people are presenting with that problem. Also this week, Rebecca Coombs talks to Jim Swire, whose daughter died in the Lockerbie bombing. Yes, it's extraordinary. I had one email from a person that I know professes to be a born-again Christian who actually said in the email, this guy murdered my family member uh, and 269 others. He gave no mercy to them. We should give him no mercy. He should not be given painkillers, withheld the diamorphine, let him die slowly and in agony. But before all that, I'm joined by Rich Hurley, who's here with this week's news. Hi, Rich. Hi, Duncan. So, what have you got for us this week? Well, first of all, I wanted to talk about the budget. In his budget this week, the Chancellor, Alistair Darling, has confirmed that he's going to keep NHS spending at current levels for 2010 to 11. But from then on, um, there's going to have to be savings made. So, apparently, a third of um, the £11 billion of um, savings from public services will have to come from the NHS. That's a, a lot of money. It is. It's um, about £4.35 billion. Okay, and how are they planning to do that? Well, they hope to save a massive half a billion pounds through re- reducing staff sickness absence, but it's not clear how they're going to do that. Andy Burnham also said that uh, £1.5 billion of cuts will come from reducing procurement costs, £100 million will come from cuts to the National Programme for IT, and £130 million of cuts will come... Um, from energy saving and more efficient management. John Appleby, the chief economist at the King's Fund, a healthcare think tank, has said that to make these savings, productivity in the NHS will have to rise by at least 3%. But on average, productivity has fallen since 1995 uh, by about 0.3% a year. Right. So big changes afoot then? It looks like, uh, yeah, there'll be, have to be some belt tightening. OK, so uh, what's your next story then? Well, I was also very pleased to see that today Simon Singh um, has won his legal appeal. So he was being sued by the British Chiropractic Association. That's right, after he uh, criticised their claims of being able to treat illnesses such as colic in childhood uh, through manipulation of the spine. So he's appealing against an initial decision. What did the judges say this time? Well, today the judge ruled that uh, Singh can now claim fair comment Um, contrary to a ruling by Mr Justice Edie that his comments um, were presented as fact. And the BMJ has not been immune from a libel action itself, has it? There's an article that's been written by one of our previous editors. That's right, Duncan. Um, In in mid-March, Richard Smith wrote a feature for the BMJ that looked at several high-profile cases uh, showing how England's libel laws are inhibiting scientific debate. In 1969, the BMJ was sued by Stanley Drummond Jackson, who was a doctor um, particularly associated with the technique of giving intravenous methoxhexetone as an anaesthetic in dental surgery. The BMJ had published a study that showed abnormal physiological responses in patients given this drug, and Drummond Jackson's lawyers wanted the BMJ to withdraw this science. Um, But eventually the case was settled by the BMA, the BMJ's owner, because of the mounting costs. And as you say, Duncan, there's a a campaign to have England's libel laws reformed, 
and Labour has pledged to reform the laws if it forms the next government, which will include things like a capping of lawyers' fees and policies to reduce libel tourism. OK, so that's it for libel this week. Um, what's your last story for us? Well, another interesting story that I've been following, and it, which is on bmj.com, is uh, um, about the designer drug Mephedrone, um, which is being, and the story's being whipped up um, all throughout the lay media. So this is the drug that's being sold as plant food to get around labelling restrictions. Um, what are the latest developments on that? That's right. Well, I've been, fo- I've been noticing the, the hysterical headlines um, screaming that swathes of the country's school children are hooked on this drug. Newspaper stories are also um, saying that uh, there have been maybe 30 deaths in the past few months which are associated with the drugs. But at least in some cases it seems that the methadrone was being taken in combination with other drugs and with alcohol. What's the result of this media frenzy uh, in terms of government decisions on the drug? The Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, has um, brought in a bill to to ban the drug and it will be pushed through um, and he hopes um, the drug will be illegal within within a few weeks. Uh, it won't just be methadrone, but the whole class of um, drugs, cathinones, which will be which will be banned. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for all that, Rich. Thanks very much, Duncan. So I'm joined now by Chris Ford, who's a GP in London and clinical director of SMMGP. That's the Substance Misuse Management in General Practice Group. Now, Chris and her colleagues have written a clinical review in this week's BMJ, which looks at cannabis use and what GPs should be doing about it. Chris, for a start, do you think that that's an area that GPs are neglecting at the moment? Well, I think it's like one of those things, if you don't think about it, you don't think about it. Um, (laughs) If I can explain. I mean, if if you're not asking people about it, or you're not thinking about it when one of the um, trigger problems that may be associated with cannabis use comes in, if you don't ask it as a standard question, then you can easily miss it. Because with 2.5 million people using cannabis in the last year, mm-hmm. most of those are between 16 and 29. Then you can see it's a very um, common problem. Sure. So you just mentioned there that there's sort of trigger things that might make you want to investigate this in a patient. Well, I think even before you get to triggers, it's a very good idea standardly, like we now have to do so much around smoking and we should be doing around alcohol, that it should be a standard question to all new registrations. Mm-hmm. But my antenna would rise probably if somebody got perhaps a worsening or a new um, um, chest problem, asthma, bronchitis, um, then I would think, well, actually, are they smoking tobacco or are they smoking something else? And if you ask it as a very clean, simple question, people actually sort of say, no, I wouldn't dream of it, doctor. Or, yes, I'm smoking cannabis because you get the, the response there. I think the other, other than chest, if somebody is coming in with um, a degree of anxiety or depression or particularly, say, like panic attacks, uh, particularly if they're a new symptom, then it's always essential to ask, is it is this about something going on in their life or is it something about what they've been taking? Sure. The, other, the other thing is that um, quite often people present either as a young person, present by themselves or quite often present with their parents saying, 
they're dropping off at school, they're not doing so well. One of the big problems with um, cannabis, particularly if you're using it regularly, is that it um, it interferes with your concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's particularly obviously a problem in, in young people who are doing exams. So you get high achievers suddenly dropping off. There must be a reason. It may be depression. It may be depression complicated with um, cannabis use. Now, just to be really practical about this, you're a GP who works with people who have addiction problems quite a lot. And it's a conversation that doctors are often reluctant to have and patients perhaps are reluctant to have with their GP. In your experience, how would you sit down with a patient and start discussing their use? Well, if they presented to me and sort of said, I've got into problems, then it's much easier. But um, what you're asking really is how you pick it up. And and I think, as I said before, what's useful is actually getting it as a standard problem. Sometimes when teaching other GPs or other um, practitioners about how to deal with any type of addiction, whatever you want, it's actually just use all your usual general practice skills. You're very good at taking a medical history about everything. We ask incredibly personal questions in in everyday um, consultations. Just add it on to your normal consultation. So like... Um, ask about smoking, ask about smoking, are you smoking anything else than than tobacco? Don't don't be frightened about it. They, they often have not given me the information, but when I've asked um, with a few additional questions, like the classic one of um, drinkers is sort of saying, oh, I only drink socially. I never let anyone get away with that. Mm-hmm. You, I only smoke cannabis socially. What do you mean by that? How often do you smoke? And like you use for alcohol diaries, you can use for cannabis. You know, when did you last smoke? Did you smoke yesterday? Did you smoke? To, um, have you smoked this morning? Um, and just doing that, just be um, very open about asking those questions. And actually, if we're going to ask a question, we have to have thought of what we're going to do with that information when we've asked the question if we aren't going to do something ourselves, whether we're going to refer them on and who we're going to refer them on to. Now, one thing that you said in your clinical review is that patients don't often bring this up as a problem. Do you think patients see cannabis as you know, the soft drug, the one that you don't have to worry about, whereas cocaine use or heroin use or something would be a trigger for them to, to come forward? I think that's really, really important because actually the, the amount of people presenting that are using cannabis, problematic cannabis use, has exponentially raised over the last five years. Whereas, you know, three years ago, it was everybody was using crack. Crack has gone down a bit, but actually cannabis use, which wasn't even thought of as an issue um, before, is now, uh, you know, is very, it's very, a lot of people are presenting with that problem. It's got the, the old um, hippie, you know, this is love and peace and all the rest of it. It's a nice, tranquil dr- drug. Uh-huh. The type of cannabis has changed since the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. The under-30s that I see, most of them have not experienced cannabis in the old-fashioned weed variety. Most of them have all taken skunk. Um, it's really important that we get that information out there and say, look, this is this is strong this is strong stuff. Just be careful about it. You're saying be careful about it, but you're not necessarily saying stop it altogether? I would much prefer if um, good old-fashioned cannabis came um, back up. But 
I think if you've ever had a problem with a drug or alcohol, it's very difficult to go back to sensible smoking. If you've got into just overusing it where you started using it just at the weekend and you and you can still keep control of your drug, if you want to continue to use it, then I think trying to get people to stop everything um, by by sort of saying it's dangerous is not helpful really. But I think once you've had a dependency problem, it's very difficult to go back to sensible smoking. Okay. And for people who do have a dependency problem, what can GPs do to, you know, what services are available? Well, it's interesting because there are, there are very few specific services. Um, most specialist drug services only deal with class A, that's heroin and cocaine and drug users. So where do people go with cannabis problems? Um, but there are a lot of things that we can do in general practice, like we've been taught many a time to do brief interventions around alcohol. Perhaps not at the more heavy end, the more dependency end, but certainly at the end when people are just starting to get into trouble. But if they're needing something more specialist, then certainly in our area, um, well, in, in our surgery, we're very fortunate in that we have a, a full-time um, drugs counsellor who is excellent and who does MI and uh, motivation interviewing and CBT. Great. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. And you can read that clinical review online on bmj.com. Now Rebecca Coombs talks to Jim Swire. In December 1988, a bomb exploded on Pan Am Flight 103 as it flew over Lockerbie, southern Scotland, killing 270 people, including Flora Swire, whose father Jim, a retired GP, writes in the BMJ this week. So Jim, tell us a bit about your daughter. My elder daughter Flora was um, the top medical student of her year at Nottingham University, and one of the subservient horrors of Lockerbie for us, our family, was that after she'd finished her um, preliminary years at Nottingham, she was so bright that they let her go to Queen Square to do a neurological research project. And um, after she'd been murdered, we had to go and clear out um, her room in London. And on her desk, we found a letter from Cambridge accepting her to do her uh, further medical studies. Um, Jane, that's my wife and I, were both uh, sure that uh, the reason she hadn't told us before she was murdered was that she was going to ring us on Christmas Day and told us then that Cambridge had accepted her. So that was another bitter, little additional mm-hmm. bitter aspect of Lockerbie for us. That's how I became involved. And uh, all the more reason why people will be amazed, really, by the compassionate tone of your article in the BMJ this week. Now, McGrath—he obviously went on and was convicted of involvement in the bombing and sentenced to life imprisonment in Scotland. Yes. Um, and then last year, the Scottish government released him on compassionate grounds to return yes. to Libya after medical advice indicated yes. that uh, McGrath, who had prostate cancer, only had three months to live. Um, now we're in April, and, and McGrath's survived for, for seven to eight months. And yes. there have been allegations in the media that his illness was fabricated or at least exaggerated yes. for some political motive, and that the doctors who advised on his condition have been bought. Now, in, in your article this week, you, you say, you know, on the contrary, we should be proud of McGrath's doctors for sticking to their yes. patient oriented professional duty. Yeah. Well, when, I, um, when he was released by Kenny McCaskill, there was an 
outbursts of the most extraordinary rage, particularly mm. from America, saying, how could you release this mass murderer? And I kept saying, well, hang on a minute, the Scottish Criminal Case Review Commission um, has uh, said that it feels that this trial may have been a miscarriage of justice, and this man was in the middle of a second appeal, which he'd been allowed by the Scottish Criminal Case Review Commission, which he cut short because he was getting so ill that he was desperate to get home to his lovely family to spend his last uh, months with them rather than in a prison cell. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, there's no question of my making some incredible adjustment to relate to this man because I don't think he was responsible for the murder of my daughter. Mm -hmm. And when the doctors advised Kenny McCaskill... Um, the same sort of thing happened. When, he, when um, McGraw had been released, uh, the, the great hoo-ha was about how could you release him. Not, no, absolutely, almost nobody raised the question of, well, was he guilty anyway? And yet that was the point which we had been near to deciding when the poor guy got so ill he had to go home. And personally, of course, I'm very glad that he did go home mm. because uh, the relief of stress from being back with his family um, must have contributed to his um, more lengthy survival than expected. Another key contributor in McGrahi's dramatic improvement uh, may well be the drug treatment that he's receiving yes. in Tripoli, along with yeah. radiotherapy. Um, can, can you talk about this apparent failure to enter McGrahi into a course of taxol-based chemotherapy while he was in Scotland? I am not, and I've never claimed to be privy to the details of how this particular patient had been managed. If I were privy to that, I wouldn't tell you or anybody else because I would regard that as being in medical confidence. Mm. It's a complex thing handling the management of a patient with uh, rampant carcinoma of the prostate with proven skeletal secondaries. By December 2008, the man was clearly going downhill and in considerable pain. And um, this left further options, didn't it? And one of the uh, common options after um, hormone manipulation therapy has failed is to try the Taxol series of drugs. And um, why those had not been tried by August um, uh, 2009 uh, in view of his obvious deterioration by uh, December 2008, I can't say because I don't know. Mm. But the, the outcome of the fact that he doesn't seem to have been given those drugs in Scotland was that uh, it may be, uh, we can't say in an individual case, but it may be that when they were given to him in Tripoli, they may have played a prominent part in his apparent um, remission. Mm-hmm. In your article, you refer to um, people urging the authorities to withhold analgesics. Yes, it's extraordinary. I had one email from a person that I know professes to be a born-again Christian who actually said in the email, this guy murdered my family member uh, and 269 others. He gave no mercy to them. We should give him no mercy. He should not be given painkillers, withheld the diamorphine, let him die slowly and in agony. And that is an extreme example of a type of reaction it's un- incomprehensible. Jim, it sounds like you've, you've spent many, many years trying to unravel the truth here, and I just hope that one day it, it comes out. C- can I just ask you one final question before Please we wrap do. up, which is just the general difficulties faced by 
doctors in cases such as these. Yes. Answering the question, how long have I got? Predictions are based on average outcomes. Um, there's no such thing as yes. a, an average patient or an average cancer. Yes, that's absolutely right. And a, a, a sound adage, which I think all doctors stand by really, is that you can't apply statistics to an individual patient mm. because gloriously we're all completely different from each other. Our immune systems are different, uh, our cancer cells are different, and all the rest of it is different. In this case, there were two major factors, as the article mentioned. One was the absolutely gross reduction of stress, and the second was the exhibition of these um, Texol drugs, which mm. may have played, uh, who knows, how, how those two were balanced against each other. But I'm happy that this particular patient has had a considerably longer life than uh, was predicted by mm. my colleagues, uh, and I'm sure that, that prediction was made with every kind of integrity behind it. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be looking at herbal medicines, what doctors know about them, and what doctors should know about them. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.